Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. G'day, welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 96 with Nakia Louie. She's on Twitter, N-A-K-K-I-A-H-L-U-I. Nakia Louie is a playwright, an actor, and an activist of Indigenous Australian heritage. More about her in a moment. Thank you so much for coming to the show. If you're new, welcome. Uh, please subscribe to the show in SoundCloud, iTunes, or the podcast app of your choice. I hope your week was as good as it could be. I am completely exhausted after my week at Splendor in the Grass. I just wanted to say thank you to every single person that came up and said hello. It was really, really lovely to meet everybody. And I've been away from the country for a very long time. And um, it was, look, it was really nice to be out in the crowd, around the people, um, around everybody, in amongst it. Um, I think of all the shows that we saw, I think only twice did Audrey and I pull rank and use our passes to stand on a viewing area. Um, but we were out and we enjoyed it so much. We danced so hard. I'm still sore. Uh, my voice has only just recovered. We partied every night. Well, I, by partied, I mean, I just stayed up late and danced, but it was just so wonderful to be around so many people having such a great and lovely time. And I just, I just want to thank everybody that, that came and said hi, cause you just made my day. Anyone that came up and remembered me from either channel V or from idol or from bachelor, it was just the most wonderful thing it also made me look really good in front of my girlfriend <laughs> no but she said what was interesting is that it was like at least 75 percent of people that came up to me were dudes so yeah there you go uh, thanks to everybody that tweeted along with uh the bachelor's premiere on wednesday night we had the the biggest opening we've ever had for the show we were something like 22 or 25 percent up from our opening episode last year which is enormous numbers for any business 
Um, we beat the other networks in our time slot, which is always very good. And we had nearly 3 million Twitter impressions on that first night, which in, in my business is a big deal. So thank you to every single person that got involved. And if you're new and if you're here and if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, cause you saw me on the bachelor, uh, hi. <laughs> um, yeah, you, I, I do other stuff except count roses. <laughs> uh, it'll all become clear in about five minutes from now. Uh, so yeah, thanks so much to everybody that came along. And uh, yeah, if you want to uh, email me, send Osher email at gmail.com and I write back to everyone. Find me on Facebook, find me on Twitter, find me on Instagram. I can't wait to get my guest on this week because um, it's been a heavy week in Australia as far as racism is concerned. Um, Nakia Louie, she's a playwright, she's an actor, she's an activist, and she is all of these as a woman of Indigenous Australian heritage. She's currently writing the second season of the hit television sketch comedy show, Black Comedy, which is super, super funny. You can find bits of it all over YouTube. And I wanted to chat to Nakia. I followed her on Twitter for ages, but then I saw an article that she wrote, and I'll put a link to this on the show page at osherginsberg.com. Um, I wanted to chat to her after I read her article in Junkie, J-U-N-K-E-E. Um, it's a website. And it's a very interesting article that, um, it's not racism that has to change in Australia. It's white privilege. And it really blew my mind um, in this week where racism is at the top of the national agenda. I really couldn't be more happy to bring this conversation to you. Nakia and I talk a lot about white privilege in this show. And it might be a bit tricky to think about if you've never considered that you benefit from it. But let me take another example. Earlier this week, I was chatting with my mate, Quentin Kenahan. He's a chap, mate of mine. He was born with osteogenesis imperfecta, brittle bone disease. He's been in a wheelchair his entire life. Um, but he and I were discussing how the world appears to him versus how it appears to able-bodied people. And um, we came up with a simple exercise to try and help people get their brains around it. Just try and imagine, just think of your average day and think about how many times in your average day um, that you need to take a step up or down from a flat surface to get what you need done for the day. I'm talking from getting out of bed, showering, going to the toilet, cooking, getting to work, getting your groceries, seeing a movie, perhaps taking someone out to dinner and then getting home again. Whatever it is that you do during your day, going to school, going to university, going to see family, friends, loved ones, how much of that would you be able to do if at no point were you able to take a step up or down from a flat surface? Well, that's exactly how the world appears to someone in a wheelchair. And the hard part is that they can see the other world. They can smell the other world. They can even hear people talk excitedly about it. They can see people benefit emotionally, physically, and financially from being able to do things that they cannot do purely because of how they were born something they had absolutely no choice in. Now, just imagine for a moment your life with white skin, the things that you have in your life because of your whiteness. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty here. I just want to point out that you may not realize that there are things in your life that you may have because... Let me... I'll, my example, I'll tell you my example. When I think about my experience, I think about... All the times, and it's a, I'm 41, I'd drive like an idiot when I was a young kid. 
all the times police let me off with a, a warning. All right? The times that the security guard at a nightclub, when I was a little too drunk, just let me in anyway. The jobs that I've got, the bank loans I've got, the cabs that I've been able to hail in the street because I'm a white man. Now, try to imagine, I try and imagine what my life would be like if I didn't have that, all right? And every single cultural message that I got from the internet, TV, radio, books, everything were only about the experience of people who had a skin color that I did not. Life would be very much more difficult only because I had the luck to be born without white skin. Nakia discusses a lot about that in this show, and I'm hoping you can approach it with an open mind. She has an incredible way of putting it. Clearly, it's not the first time she's had the conversation. But I would would implore you to just kind of consider, just consider the point of view that she has. I'm not saying you've got to believe it. Just consider it and see how that kind of sits with you. We also discuss what it's like to be writing the very first Aboriginal sketch comedy show since the 70s uh, when a program called Basically Black aired on the ABC. I've put some links up to that uh, on my website, oshigensberg.com, including um, a particular sketch that she found particularly influential. Now, when you listen to this, Nakia is going to use some language to describe Aboriginal people that is essentially the Australian equivalent of the N-word, all right? So even though you hear her say it, it is not permission to repeat it, okay? Um, but it is in context and uh, you'll get the power and you'll hear my reaction because I was aghast when, when she pulled it out. But I get why she was, was doing so. But in this week where so much has been said uh, about race in Australia, particularly Aboriginal um, race, Indigenous people being proud of their heritage and Indigenous people being proud and brave enough to stand up to a society that doesn't want to allow them to be proud and brave. I think it's a really important conversation to have, but I'm really grateful I can bring it to you. So it is funny. I promise you, we do laugh. Um, This is a great conversation over a nice cup of tea with the wonderful, the talented, the beautiful, and the very, very funny Nakia Louie. All right, so I'm recording now. Okay, cool. <laughs> I can put, uh, um, do you want me to turn this off? You can do whatever you want. It's all right. Um, you probably, you probably, I know you pronounce it differently, but you're the, you're the second Nakaya that I've met. Really? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Well, we had a whole heap of like my um, family members named their daughters Nakia after I was born. Yeah. And so now there's like a bunch of. Nikias. Yeah. But when I was a, like when I was younger, I was I hated it. Yeah. I felt like it made me less special. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want you to name your kid that. Do people shorten your name? Um. Yeah. Like Kiki. Oh Just really? Family. Yeah. Is that all right? It's okay. I could never deal with people shortening my name. So change. <laughs> <laughs> well, my boyfriend doesn't. He's always called me like Nikia. Yeah. Doesn't call me a nickname. It's weird. Yeah. Just yeah, refuses to. Well, he's probably the only. Person. Is that tea okay? Is it? Yeah, no, it's good. It's hot. Well, it just came good. out of a boiling kettle. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Okay. I like it hot. That was a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming over. It's for folks who are listening. It's a, um, it's a cold, just windy 
rainy Sydney day and I'm in my cardi in my kitchen uh, and I'm feeling extra cosy today. Yeah, it's a nice day for that. In fact, the cosy was so intense I couldn't go to gym today. <laughs> That's okay. I'm just like, nah. It's a good excuse. Well, yeah. my excuse is I fell off my bike the other day. Oh, yeah, I noticed like, that. What yeah, was... well, that or I'm you know, like stigmata. Oh, well, watch out for that. Well, this one isn't, though. <laughs> Maybe it's like half stigmata. Hey, mom, like back that. on Sunday. Yeah, uh, well, if it's half, you'd be like maybe back Saturday night or something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That was worse. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so look, I'm I'm grateful you can be here. Um, to this this part of Sydney, we're in a, the eastern part of Sydney. We're right at the edge of a, of, of Australia. It's about a kilometre that way. Is is where the country runs out and the ocean yeah. begins. Um, where did you Where did you grow up? I grew up in the the actual opposite of a direction of Sydney. So the western suburbs uh, in Mount Druitt, which is just below where the mountains start. So it's the opposite way of, of where we're sitting now. In pretty much almost every way. Yeah, yeah, very much. <laughs> we do have red brick, though, uh, and, and roads. I don't know that terrible. Power and, and sewerage. And then sewerage. And, and as far as socioeconomic and, you know, the availability of half-fat lattes on every corner, it's pretty much the opposite. Yeah, I think the only coffee joint out that way is the kebab shop and Starbucks. I think Starbucks. a lot of people might not have known, particularly around Australia, if you weren't. For, I didn't know about Mount Druitt before I turned up here in 99. Yeah, okay. Uh, because I grew up in Brisbane. But yeah. we had Anala and, you know, Goodna yeah. and places like that. Is Logan like that up that yeah. way? Yeah. Yeah, okay. It was more Anala when I was growing up. Yeah, uh, and Dara, those were the kind of places. But now it's it's more than it was like Kingston and stuff like that. Like the, you know, I'm 19, I have three children. I yeah. don't know where their mum is, but I'm still doing speed. Yeah, <laughs> that type of vibe. Yeah, 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 yeah. But was it was it like because I, I only say this because a lot of people might have only recently come to know what Mount Druitt's like for the, the SBS program Struggle Street, which is just on a few weeks ago. Yeah, now they may not have known about it. What was it like growing up there? Uh, it wasn't too dissimilar. I mean, what they presented in Struggle Street, which was those kind of extreme levels of poverty and, um, I guess, socioeconomic dysfunction, there was definitely that. Um, so those type of images weren't unfamiliar for me. Uh, however, there was, you know, it's it's also really working class. Mm. You know, the thing is, is that when you're kind of from those suburbs and there's not a lot of generational wealth and things, there's not a lot of, a lot of opportunity you also have people who are, who are in the, I guess, employment cycle but still, you know, kind of one step away from falling onto welfare or, you know, going into the poverty cycle. So it was a little bit, it was a little bit of, of both. It was quite, my memories of it are great, which is, you know, it was kind of quaint and small and, and quite working class, um, that there was like a lot of still like diversity when I was younger uh, and, but there was also like the the poverty, the extreme policing and things like that. Mm. So that was really like that was quite familiar. Yeah. I have I have I know it's nothing compared to what you're talking about, but I do notice when I come back here, I spend uh most of my year in Los Angeles and a bit of my year in the Netherlands in yeah. Amsterdam. So oh. I've got two other cultures to I guess compare this one to. When I come back here, the amount of policing that I see in Australia is like hang on a second. Do we really need this much? Yeah. Or is it really? Are we really that poorly behaved? Like I just like how visible, particularly with, I mean, here around here, it's mostly kind of traffic stuff and and things like that. And but 
I don't want to use the word petty, but minor infringements tend to copper major whack. Yeah, and they build up. I mean, and that's the, I worked for a legal service before I got into entertainment. And, um, and sorry, I felt really weird saying that. But before I started writing for television and things, and um, it was it was really interesting, you know, petty petty things like parking fines, which then leads to not being able to renew a license, which then leads to driving whilst suspended or driving without a license, driving while suspended, which then leads to driving whilst, whilst disqualified, which is then a, a jail term. So you really start to see that type of, I guess, just going back to Mount Druitt in places like Mount Druitt where that over-policing for petty things does have a massive impact if you don't have the financial means to kind of pay off those kind of arbitrary fines, you know. Yeah, a lot of people yeah. might not might not think that. It's a statistic that really sticks with me. And I've been thinking about it a lot since mm. I've, I've been back in Australia for the last few months that there's 47 million Americans who basically if there was an unexpected $400 bill, for example, the alternator goes on your car or your kid breaks a leg or something, they wouldn't know where to get the money from. Yeah. Like to be that close to I can't buy food is out of concept for a lot of people. I mean, particularly if you're listening to this, you've got an iPhone, all right, or you've got a Samsung Galaxy. That's You're listening to this because you own a computer or, or you have access to the internet. Yeah. But there's so many people that don't have that, not only in this country, you know, in this country, I guess. But to, to the idea that a parking fine could end you up in prison is beyond so many people's comprehension. Oh, gets on your criminal record. It's yeah. insane, but it happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, it just seems rather unnecessary. I don't know. That's kind of why I stopped going out a lot. It's like walking around the streets. There's just so many police. It just made everything really tense. Yeah, I don't go out. Like, yeah. Well, I'm sober, but I still, I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't go out. I remember, I think one time I tried to catch a cab in the city on um, Liverpool Street and I thought, someone's going to get knifed. I'm, I'll walk home. <laughs> it's yeah. like so dangerous to be out on the street at two in the morning. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, so why used to travel to Israel a bit and people would be like, Aren't you afraid? I'm like, dude, have you been out in Sydney on, yeah, exactly. on a Friday night after a football game? Crazy. You're more likely to get you know, in trouble there. It is tough. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Do you have many siblings? Yeah, I have. I, I have one of those big blended families. So I have two dads and a mum. So I have uh, three sisters and a brother. And how does the two dads part work? Uh, well, my mum, uh, I have my biological father. I know my mum separated when I was very young. And then my other, my dad, I call my dad, but I suppose he's my stepdad, raised me. So, yeah, it's quite funny because my mum's, so my mum's Aboriginal, my biological father is Torres Strait Islander, and then my, my dad, my stepdad is also Indigenous, but they're from really, they're from really big families across the East Coast. So my joke has always been I can't, like I can't date anyone from the East Coast because I'm like related to everyone. It's crazy. Yeah. When we did Black Comedy, which was like the Indigenous sketch show, it was, I was related to, I think, four, like three of the cast members and like two of the crew members. It was like, yeah, it was a bit nuts. Right. It sounds like in, because in Israel, of course, the gene pool is quite shallow. People yeah. really actually do have to get blood tests beforehand. Yeah. Just to make sure. Because <laughs> it's only small, it's like four million people, five million people. Yeah. I went on a date once with a guy and he was like my fifth cousin. And I was like, oh, this is a bit. Yeah, this can't go any further. This oh, is, you're wow. my cousin. Yeah, that is that is wild. So, yeah. you know, what, what was what was school like out out there in that part of the world? Um, it was, it it was quite. Uh, it was 
it was a it was an odd experience. I've been thinking about it a lot in the last year, just because um, uh, like I've been getting a lot of messages from young women and things like that. So you kind of uh, think about what you were like at that age. I did my first up until year ten in Australia, um, at, in the western suburbs in um, St Mary's, uh, which is just next door to Mount Druitt, um, and it was it was great. It was a little hard. There was a little racism. Um, I remember like the Abo jokes being really like it was really isolating, um, and having people say Abo jokes every day, and people who were your friends say these jokes and laugh at them around you, and then being told, "Oh, it's okay. You're not like." other Aboriginal people or you're our friend so you're not like everyone else. So that was always, that was really tough um, and it was really isolating. And when you're a teenager, you're just trying to survive, right, because everything's so awkward. Uh, But it was also um, like I did lots of, I was a nerd, I did like a lot of theatre, I did debating and things like that. And then when I was 16, I won a scholarship to an international school in Canada uh, called United World Colleges where um, the late, Nelson Mandela was the honorary president and things like that. So it was when I went overseas and was in this kind of international community of uh, like teenagers who were no matter where you're from in the world. So we had people from Israel, Palestine, Afghanistan, Canada, um, a lot of different places in Europe, India subcontinent, uh, Asia, uh, Fiji. Um, It was, yeah, that's when I kind of like things got, yeah, it was, I felt like I had ownership over my identity. And Did you have when that... When you saw that racism at school, I mean, that's the kind of racism, I guess, that most, I mean, I've, you know, I've talked about this on the show before. I went to an, I grew up in the, the Western, I didn't, wasn't born in Australia, I'm an immigrant, but yeah. I was, I grew up in a, in a super white, super middle class, Western suburbs of Brisbane, uh, white kid state school. Yeah. And so the first jokes I heard were Aboriginal jokes because it's in Brisbane and yeah. it was Joe Bielke Peterson and it was, you know, totally, yeah. it was intense. And as a kid, you repeat them because you just don't know. And yeah. I, I shudder to think about the gags I used to tell, you know. It's horrible when I think about it now, but I just, I honestly, I just didn't know. Yeah. And then luckily I was along the way, well, actually this is not okay that I didn't know this stuff and I actually ended up growing out of it. But the kind of jokes you're describing, the kind of kids that say those kind of things, some of them just don't ever have that realisation, do they? No, they don't. And some of them, it's really sad. Like I would get into, like I remember one of my friends, Michael, he said an Aboriginal joke and I heard it and I like slapped him across the face. And luckily he like must have known he was in the wrong because I didn't get in trouble. Like he didn't dub me in or anything. But, yeah, some people just don't and it just carries on. And that's why for me, like in Australia, this, this, because where I grew up was actually really multicultural. It was, there was a lot of, um, like there was a lot of, there was quite a lot of like Indian and, pardon me, Lebanese, uh, Greek people from like the Mediterranean area. Uh, there was a few people from like Malta and I was still Mediterranean, but it was quiet what I'm saying is that it was really, it was really culturally diverse, but yet it was still, it was still hard to be like a, like an Aboriginal person in that environment. So I think a lot of the kids, though, who did tell those jokes have actually grown up to be really nice people and hopefully the values they then pass on to their children will be significantly different to what they must have been hearing and getting taught in the home. Yeah. Yeah. 
so besides slapping someone across the face, which, which is horrible, is an extreme reaction. Well, you know, understandable if you're a kid, you don't have the words. Yeah. Did you have any other tools to deal with that kind of thing as a kid? Well, I was really lucky. My parents were um, my parents were like activists back in back in the day. Well, they still are today, but just in a different way. Um, and what were the main issues that they were? Um, that they they, they, they were in, unfortunately probably the same issues. Yeah, now, aren't they? very much so. Very much about Indigenous rights, mm. um, Indigenous equity. Uh, like my mum's very much involved in health. So a lot of that's around the mortality rates uh, and that the fact that our the age in which we die is so much uh, lower compared to everybody else. Um, and my dad does a lot in cultural studies and trying to kind of reframe how we think about race. So I would, you know, I was, I would kind of like get up on my uh box and rant to this like my fellow peers and things like that uh so I was quite articulate in that sense um but it was it definitely became a, a choice of pick your battles yeah. and just you internalize people's own discrimination so you start to you know you you think it's about you or you start to feel insecure which leads to kind of anxiety and things like that so it becomes very much about I think that and you know it becomes about you, if you're not speaking against it, I think you internalise it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I should point out, though, that at the outset of this conversation that I've always had a great interest in Indigenous issues. And yeah. That's led me to research, that's led me to read, that's led me to go out into the parts of Australia where these issues are happening, explore. Mm. And there's one thing I know, that the more I read, the more I research, the more I talk to people, just the less and less and less I know. Yeah. And it's kind of frustrating because it's almost like you open the door to that warehouse that you integrate as the Lost Ark because you're like, here's the door to trying to understand this stuff. And you're like, oh, crikey. And every time you open a box, it's full of five million more boxes. And it's and so I yeah. you know, I really related. I, you came here because I read an article that you wrote in uh, Junkie. Yeah. Junkie.com, J-U-N-K-E-E.com. And one thing that really uh, resonated with me, which we'll get to later, yeah. is um, – well, what do I tell my white friends to do about white privilege? Yeah. As I thought, well, shit, um, I don't, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. You said yourself in the article you didn't know the answer to that question, but um, I think, well, we'll get to that anyway. So yeah. I just wanted to point that out. It's like I'm probably going to say some dumb shit today that you go, dude, come on, man. I know you're trying to fuck. So anyway, so that's, I uh, just wanted to point that out. No, I am a, I'm a fan of the dumb shit. I'm like, people <laughs> need to ask this stuff because yeah. I have the same questions too sometimes yeah. about who knows what. Yeah. Yeah. So how old, how old were you when you sort of realized, because as kids you think, okay, my, this is how everybody is. Yeah. How old were you when you went, my life's kind of different. There's things in my life are different. Um, I was in primary school. I remember the first time I realized that my race wasn't a good thing. And that was when one of the teachers called me an abo after school. Yeah. And um, it was this whole, we turned into like, a, you know, my parents went to the school and were really upset and things like that. And um, it was in one of those, uh, it used to be called the, what was it called? The homework club. I think that's what it was called. It was where the Indigenous kids would come after school and you'd have like snacks and do your homework, right? Which was great when you're a kid. It's only now that I realise it was one of the ways, like the same with Breakfast Club, is to make sure that kids get a hot meal and get their schoolwork done because a lot of people were in very unstable environments. Um, but for me it was just, you know, I knew all of the kids were from the same community. Mount Joy is a very close-knit Indigenous community. It's the largest urban community in Sydney, so, I mean, in Australia. So 
that was the first time I realized that um, that I was being Aboriginal was not a good thing. It was something that I'd been so proud of up until that point and then realizing that this authority figure at your school just called you something and not really understanding what it was but knowing it wasn't good, didn't really know what Abo was. Um, and then I think it it was um, just gradually as I got older as, you know, realising that not everyone else's brother is in and out of jail and people aren't getting exposed to the same levels of kind of, you know, seeing people, family members get incarcerated and, you know, um, just the same type of, I guess, like people's housing just being different and things like that. And just so, so seeing that as you get older and realise, oh, wait there, this is not, this is not um, normal. And then it wasn't until I went to uni and I went to, I studied over this way at UNSW, um, University of New South Wales doing law. And then when I started making friends with different people in my law courses and going to their house for parties, I'd like never seen that level of wealth before. So it was kind of like, oh, wow, like I'm, I never realised this, but I was, I was like from a very like, yeah, poor background, but just with a very privileged, you know, like family that like parents of good values. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I, I just, just yeah. a few, just something to, for folks who are listening overseas that I won't say that word, but that word is the equivalent, cultural equivalent of the N word in this country. Yeah. It really is. You can't call someone like, can't call someone that and, and not expect to be shanked. Um, or, you know, or yeah. like there'd be some uh, some sort of repercussions. Yeah. It's, it's a very, very violent word um, and it's intended to be so, you know, and it's unfortunate that it's so, so, so common. But your folks being who they are, your folks being activists, mm. were they ones to sit you down and go, well, here's why? Yeah, they did. They explained to me very early on um, about the kind of discrimination against Aboriginal people, and they also grew grew up like my sisters and I and my my brother um, grew up with knowing about your history and being proud of your history, but being aware as to why things happen and why people might treat you a different way. Like I remember my dad; um, he's he's a pretty humble guy. He's we call him like little black man because he's really short and a bit chubby and dark and wears tracksuit pants all the time. Um, he's a bit I, of a dag. They're comfy. They're, I believe once you've had more than two kids, you're like, don't ever have to go to the shops again. <laughs> you just wear the same stuff until you die. Yeah, well, okay, you yeah. might have to get along perfectly. Yes. Yeah. This yeah. cardigan, I'm going to have this on forever. Yeah. He's a dad, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm the, this is the only pair of pants I own. <laughs> really? I'm not even lying. Yeah, he's <laughs> like that. He's so like... Um, He's, you know, has just different values, I guess, to me and my sisters in that yeah. respect. But he he did get a new car once and it was the first new car he ever got. I mean, he grew up as the son of a, a of a drover, um, so he'd never used a toilet until he was eight years old. So he's from pretty humble beginnings and he got this new car and um, he got the police put him over on suspicion of driving a stolen car and then he got locked up for three days. It was over a public holiday. Um, so they didn't have to let him out within that period. And this was back in the 90s. Um, and I remember, you know, like we didn't know where my dad was. Like we had no idea what was going on. And I still remember how panicked my mum was. But then having to kind of, you know, them explaining as to why that happened and that you have to be careful when being around police and that kind of fear of, you know, like seeing a police officer and not knowing if they're going to like come take your dad like I still have that now, yeah. So 
So it's they've always been really honest like that and have always said, don't judge people. Like try and understand where they're coming from. And if they're using those words, maybe ask them why they're using that. How unsafe is the world as a kid though? If you, I mean, other kids grow up and you say, if the police, they'll come and protect us if we need to be protected. How unsafe as a kid is the world if you're like, I'm getting bullied at school, people are telling racist jokes at school, the people who are supposed to protect me will steal my father away from me. Uh, how frightening could that be? Yeah, I, that's the thing. I don't remember it as a particularly frightening time because yeah. I had such a lovely childhood, but those things I think just stay with you and the legacy of those experiences that they leave behind in how you experience the world like, you know, I think there were, like there's been some new statistics that were released in the last few years about mental health and depression within Indigenous communities and and the rates of um, suicide, which is a different topic. But looking at, you know, more likely to be prone to things like depression, it is, you just think, well, in terms of your environment and these are the things that you're experiencing, they, they just would exacerbate said that wrong but they just would you know no you said it perfectly yeah, right and they, the idea that you're not even walk or more safe in a country that you have more claim to than the people who are making it all walk or more safe for you yeah it's crazy but it's i don't know there's a real i don't know my community there's a kind of a real resilience and but also a welcoming yeah. Yeah. Because you're like, you are the, like, you just do not belong. Like, it's your land. And if you don't belong on your land, you're just like the furthest away from the normal in this country. So it's, I think there's a power in that. So, with this homework club, this after school club, will you want to hang out? Because your family is so extended. Will you want to hang out with uh, the other kids in your, in your, um, community or did you did your social circle extend uh, beyond that yeah no my social circle extended beyond that um there weren't many like I didn't have many cousins who were interested in like musical theater they're all into footy so yeah by that default I had to make other friends right um Simon Gleason was in that chair yesterday oh really yeah oh that's amazing Jean Valjean sat right there had a cup of tea I <laughs> like yeah fangirling but um, yeah, they're all into footy. So, you know, I had to make other friends elsewhere. Um, yeah. yeah, I did have other friends, but they were, um, they were across the board. Yeah, they were yeah, really yeah. nice. Yeah. I grew up in Brisbane at a time, uh, before Expo, uh, 88, which was the World Exposition. It was an interesting time. Uh, much like before the Olympics in Sydney, how the demographics were definitely different. Yeah. Before the Olympics, uh, before the Expo in, uh, 88, um, you know, we'd go down to Centenary Pool and there'd just be heaps of Indigenous kids just hanging out. I remember being terrified. Oh, really? Terrified. Well, I, you know, I, you're afraid of what you don't know. And exactly, when you're 12 yeah. or 13 and all you've ever heard about is all these horrible stories. So I went to a, a school that had a lot of kids from, you know, Longreach and pastoral country. You know, yeah, yeah. most horrendous stories about, you know, more urban myth than anything, yeah. more people under the stairs, more kind of, for want of a better word, more kind of boogeyman kind of made-up stories. Yeah. So I get there and there's like these 15 kids taking over the diving board. I'm shit scared. Shit scared of these kids. So much so that I wanted to leave. Yeah, but they would have, I can just, I know this is really laughing at something that's actually quite sad in a way, but it's, I bet they were totally taking advantage of the fact that like the white boy was scared. Oh, totally. Yeah, they would have been like, yeah, 
I was also super fat. So I was <laughs> terrible. I was totally ashamed of my body at the time. Oh. Oh, yeah. I was, I was in Weight Watchers when I was eight. I was. Yeah, me too. All right. Really? Yeah. I still still struggle with it, to be honest. I I was very, very big for a long time. So I was about 19. Yeah, so. 19, 20. Mine was like mid-20s. Yeah? Yeah, and it was 48 kilos, I think. That's gone off topic. 48 kilos overweight. Yeah. How much I've lost since then. I was 112 when I was 17. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and I'm 83 now, so 30 kilos heavier. Then as a kid, but it was all fat and there's no muscle. That's great. Congratulations. (laughs) I just, you know, there's something to not eating heaps of shit food and actually moving that does something to your body. I know, right? I I had so much. I have so much more energy. I was like, (laughs) maybe that's because I'm not carrying like an extra person and I'm not eating as much sugar. What was the shift for you? When did did you go, this is it, I've got to move? Or did it just start to happen? You know what it was? It was that... um, my, my. Because you, because you look great. The, the oh, woman that sits in front of me does not look like the woman that I saw on Black, on, on Black Comedy. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you look about half as big as that person. Thanks. Yeah, I'd still like to. And that doesn't happen up. easily. I know from someone who's yeah. done it. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of work. It was after my um, my both, all, like both all my family have diabetes type two, and um, uterine. My mum had uterine cancer. And she got, she, and that was rather complicated from her diabetes type 2. Then my dad got diabetes. And my dad's always been very healthy. Uh, and it, then, and so all of my grandparents had diabetes. A lot of my auntie and uncles, my aunt, auntie and uncles had type 2 diabetes. Um, my sugar was going up. I was quite heavy. And they were just like, like you're indigenous, so you're already prone to diabetes. Um, that was the main kicker. I've said diabetes like a million times, but I was I was really scared of getting it. And I just realized, yeah, like if you're genetically predisposed to certain diseases, then you're just going to have to work. Like you don't want to like give it a head start. Yeah. So it was that. It was, and there was also new, after mum had uterine cancer, there's also been research into those type of cancers and Indigenous women, um, the rates of uterine cancer within Indigenous women have actually risen in the last few years. So... Looking at that, I was just like, there needs to be a really big lifestyle shift. And everything I set out to do from being that kid who was called an abo in primary school to being like the fat kid, like the fat Aboriginal kid in high school, like all of the things I wanted to do, like I wanted to be a playwright. I became a playwright. I wanted to write a sketch show. I wrote a sketch show. I was like, well, I can do this. So it was like, yeah, that was it. And how did you go about it? Um, Well, it was a lot of... uh, it was a massive diet shift. Uh, it was just kind of reassessing how you view f- food. And I think we really, this is, we view food as kind of being quite gluttonous well, in our society. And I think if you don't, if maybe you're a bit predisposed to being just a little bit more gluttonous than the rest, then you're just going to eat more. So it's looking at it as being sustenance rather than as an enjoyment. Well, uh, in sense? my house it was, uh, we were, uh, I lived with my grandmother who, you know, survived World War Two, yeah. and both my folks had been refugees at that point, so it was like we won, eat, you know, yeah, exactly, Victory, yeah, you, Hitler, <laughs> eat. <laughs> I think that was similar, yeah, yeah, because my parents and my grandparents grew up like very poor, so food was something they always had to like be really careful about, yeah, you know, but they tried to get. So when they had kids, we when just got abundance. over, yeah. yeah, we just were overfed, like cookies and yeah. chocolate and 
white bread galore. So, <laughs> and then, and I'm, I'm guessing there was a lot of education that you had to give yourself about nutrition and, and what you need as well. Yeah, totally. Um, and it, yeah, it was just a massive, massive yeah. like shift. Um, but it was a lot of stuff I knew, and it's just when you decide to make that decision yeah. to actually do it, and then it's tough. But after like the first six months, it's a little bit easier, and then and then it just gets to the point. I think it's not that the temptation doesn't go away. Like you know, there's those days where you're like, I really would like some like hot chips, but then you might have those hot chips, and they're like they feel so disgusting after. You just go, I won't do that the next time. Yeah, so, yeah. We are sitting on a table with a big box full of cupcakes yeah well i've been eating so much sugar because we're doing season two of black comedy yeah so i've just been eating heaps of sugar and writing and i've just I've noticed the difference so i've oh. just cut sugar out the last few days okay yeah that's <laughs> why i was like oh they look really good but no yeah, yeah. i do so can i ask uh, i'm probably going to ask a few dumb questions yeah like no the go for it indigenous type questions yeah uh those same kids at, at the centenary pool in brisbane there was a distinct shift between when those kids were wearing NRL jersey, well, it was just called rugby league back then. It was before mm. the National Rugby League. When AFL jerseys is fashion and then when everyone looked like they were in NWA, there was a definite shift when hip-hop culture suddenly was like, oh, empowerment, boom. Yeah. Did you notice that? Was that around the time that you, did you see that? Not, not for me, no, no, because when I was in high school, it was like back into like Jebediah, Australian type of uh-huh. grungy type right. of thing. Um, I guess I'm talking more about the like the Indigenous kids' relatability to that, you know, the African-American struggle. I'm seeing that now. Yeah, I really think there's been, I think maybe because of the internet, I think uh, that this seems to be a new social movement within like Black Lives Matter, within Black Rights, and I think... What I noticed, especially with Dr. Cornel West coming over from the States um, just last week, is that the, and I've noticed this with my work, which is why I think black comedy did so well, is that there was kind of, there seems to be a real unity between those who who aren't just, who, who are like brown from everywhere. Does that make sense? Mm. And also people who just don't hold the same values of, of white supremacy and white privilege or are thinking about race in a different way. And I think that, you know, and I think it relates to sexual politics and I think it relates to gender politics. And I think what's happened is this community has formed that's a lot more militant Mm. and is, I think, quite proactive because there's just more of us from so many different diasporas. Yeah. So that's, it's for me, it's happening now. Yeah. Yeah. You, you talk about the white, the white privilege and I, I did think a lot about the article that you wrote and I, it's something that I, and I've said on this show many, many times, is just by sheer luck of the draw that I was born white, I was born male, and I was born middle class into a safe country. Yeah. You know, like you know, I, I saw photographs this morning, as everybody's seen photographs this morning, I saw photographs this morning of there's at the border crossing for Turkey, between Turkey and Syria, um, people trying to get into Turkey through this tiny little gate mm. and then ISIS show up. They start setting fire to the camp and people just go, they're escaping like, it, to say it was like animals fleeing a forest fire, you know, with that urgency, ripping holes through cyclone fences, passing children to people over razor wire and then you see the the, the ISIS guys 
come up against the fence firing AK-47s into the air and they're herding everyone back away from the fence and they're just looking back grinning at the, the Turkish border guards. Like it's only through some lotto draw that I wasn't born in that part of the world. And yeah. When I think about for a lot of people that they may not realise that you were born one metre from the finish line and as long as you, like, don't do heroin and just keep vaguely moving in that direction, you're going to be okay. And that's what your life is like. And then so when you turn around and go, how come other people can't be like this? They may not realise that that's the advantage that they've been given. And I guess that's what I, you know, when I read the article that you, you wrote about, you know, it's not racism that needs to change, it's white privilege that needs to change. That's a very different view on the conversation, which many people might not consider. Yeah, I think it's really... It's, it's really about reframing the question, especially contextually looking at Australia where we, we suppose we're an egalitarian society. So this idea of, of every type of political type of issue that comes up, especially sociopolitical when looking at race and discrimination, it all comes from this place of complete egalitarianism, which is that we're all equal. And the reality is, is that we're not. And that's just based purely on on really essentialist things like the colour of your skin. Um, Fran Leibowitz says the further you are away from white, the more trouble you are. And I really like that. I also like using that as like the further you are away from like a value system because I do think it is a value system. I think especially in Australia we do, there is this kind of centre um, that's that's been here since 1788 which is about, well, this is about having a fair go and that if I can do it then why can't you do it? Um, which is, I think, really toxic. Uh, it, you know, like I experience white privilege all the time just purely by the fact that I'm a lot fairer than like my sister. My sister's really dark and we laugh at her. We go like, don't get too tan, otherwise you're not going to be able to get a cab. Yeah, we, it's, we can't because she's really dark. We call her Chico Black because she's like a little Chico baby. <laughs> We're terrible. But um, we torment each other. But it is that thing. Uh, I was walking through Mount George Shopping Centre like about well, just under a year ago, and there was this um, girl there. She was an Aboriginal um, lady, and she was yelling, starting the voices started getting raised, the police. and Her voice is what? Started getting raised. So they started yelling. So I was with my mum, and so we kind of went over uh, and were like, hey, what's going on? And what they were wanting to do was uh, they said she'd, like, stolen something at the reject shop, which is like a dollar store. Uh, and they wanted to church, like um, search her pram and they wanted to do it right there in the middle of the shopping centre. And, of course, she has baby. She's getting upset. The baby starts crying. They start yelling. Just, baby starts crying more. She starts yelling. This, like you could see that this whole thing was just going to escalate. Anyway, we had a chat to them. Um, I was like, well, if you, if you want to, like, search her pram, at least take her to a private room. And if you want to, you're threatening to arrest her. If you're going to arrest her, she's an Indigenous person. She is allowed to have a support worker. I'll go with her because my background is law. So anyway, um, my mum ended up getting their sergeant. Sergeant came over and the whole thing kind of disfused. But it was the fact that we didn't look black. Like they didn't know that we were black and we were white faces that they kind of backed off from her. That's when I kind of realised I can walk through a shopping centre. I can, um, without getting followed by security, I feel like I have a certain amount of privilege when it comes to kind of police because when I go to them I'm well spoken and I look fair I don't have the same fear that 
certain cousins of mine do. So it's this idea of like when you have someone who experiences white privilege telling you that white privilege is a problem, then yeah, it, it is because I experience it every day, if that makes any sense. It makes but, it, it makes total yeah. sense that you have such an interesting perspective on it, knowing that when you talked about a brother being in and out of jail and yeah. you talked about family members being in and out of jail, you know, there's so much, you know, there's you see all this stuff on the internet, you know, um, what's that? It's a horrible racist joke it's as a white guy i can't say the n-word but i can't say, but i can say thanks for the warning officer yeah <laughs> that's that's a terrible joke but it's so true yeah yeah it's terrible mm. it's a terrible gag but it's a lot of a lot of a lot of people don't even consider that you know what what if the police treated everyone the way they treat people who are, are not white yeah. People wouldn't have a bar of it. They wouldn't. <laughs> they would be like step down officer or something. I don't know if that's police terminology. I think it was also, I mean, when I remember, I remember getting into law school and I remember like people always telling me, isn't it great that you've made it this far? You know, and it was like, really? Is it like, what are they actually saying? And isn't it? So I used to get that all the time. Like, it's so good that you got here. And for me, it was, it was no matter how much I tried, I was always lucky to be where they are. And it was all for, you know, my hard work or like, I don't know, it was, it was a really interesting comment. And then, um, you know, when people started saying, you know, well, we really need more Indigenous lawyers and things like that. And for me, that's kind of when those questions started, like new questions started coming about and in trying to reframe, like reframe the debate, mm. is that what are you saying to me when you're saying, isn't it great that you've made it this far? Like, isn't it great that, that for me it was like, isn't it great that you can be white or isn't it great that you can be like us and you're not like the rest of those other Aboriginals? Mm. Like you're a different type of Aboriginal. And I think that's why that always really sat so uneasy with me. Um, and then when it came to we need more Indigenous lawyers, it's like, well, we need to, if we have this many Indigenous people in the legal system that we need all these Indigenous lawyers for, maybe we need to think about why they're in the legal system. Like it just seemed like these very type of top-down, very privileged comments that were constantly being thrown mm. my way. Yeah, and, and the you know when you think about the paradigm or the the, the frame of which people are looking at this stuff, it really is from a place of you know their own. Sorry, I used the wrong word earlier in the sentence, but their own their own paradigm. They just don't really have, and you know, and I didn't for a long time have the concept that oh, I am lucky enough to live in a society that's geared particularly for me as a white man. It's set up so that I can succeed. Uh, you know, to to one point, the, the the a white woman who has exactly the same skills as me will get paid seventy five cents to the dollar that I do. Yeah. And, you know, and we start. You know, then what if? I was a few shades darker, or what if I came from Southern Europe, not Northern Europe? Yeah, you know, I still came here, but what if yeah. I looked different than this? What if I'd come from slightly slouched into the east? You know, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of so such pure chance. Yeah, and then we create a value system yeah. that essentializes these things and puts importance of them, and so you have kind of this one group of, and I think, like, I honestly think when we need to look at race, 
because I've been thinking about what, just going back to what you're saying, what do I tell my white friends to do who have white privilege? And I think it's, I think it's actually a value system. Like, I think it's really hard for people who don't hold the same values of white privilege or who may be white and may be male and do have, you know, like, like they go, how do I relate to this? Like, but your values aren't the same. So I think you actually have a lot of that, like a lot of power in the fact that you can act on your values. Like, I think it's just as hard for people who just don't have the same values, which is, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's a weird, it's a, it's a strange conversation. Well, you know, that's it's an important one, but it, it's really yeah. yeah. So, what do you what? There's people listening who might, you know, let's just say, for example, there's someone listening who's gone, oh, I never thought of it that way. I never thought that I'm able to get a bank loan. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Or have walked through the street at night without getting hassled or got a job or held a cab because of the colour of my skin. And I don't feel okay about that. What if this is like someone's listening and they're just going, oh, yeah, that's mm, true. Where do you start? Yeah, well, I think, like, where do you start? It's, I mean, one of the things is, like, one of the causes I'm really passionate about is something like the custody notification service, right, which is with the Aboriginal Legal Service. That's uh, the, the Abbott government's about to shut it down. They've got funding for about another two weeks. The 30th of June, yeah. yeah. And what that is is that came about after the Royal Commission into deaths in custody. Uh, and since they put that line in place, it's just a 24-hour service. It's really cheap. It's like 500000 I think. Uh, it's just a 24-hour service where it means if someone gets, if an Aboriginal person goes into custody, that they have someone to call. And the reason why it's for Aboriginal people is because there were an inordinate amount of Indigenous people being killed in custody as opposed to non-Indigenous people. So because a lot of people have been saying, well, shouldn't this be for everyone? It's like, well, that would be, it's not It's not a problem for everyone, which is, I guess, um, the issue. So for that, you know, they're shutting that down. And I think that's, for me, that, that, that shift in, it's just such a sinister shift in values as a country is that we're shutting down a service that is actually there to save lives, that has been proven to save lives, um, that is, you know, blameless. So we're not saying we're not going into, you know, training police or anything like that. It's just going, this is a line that someone can call to notify, to say um, I'm in a prison and they know that they are, they're safe because someone else knows that they're there. Uh, and that's just been completely cut. I think like something like that, there's a lot of, 
like one of the things um, ALS has been, Aboriginal Legal Service has been telling people to do is call up your local MP, like email them, call them, call Nigel Scullion, who's the Aboriginal Affairs Minister, sign the petition, but like lobby your MPs, which is what I've been doing um, for a lot of things that I feel really passionate about. I've only started that within like the last six months or so is call your MPs. Like I think if there's a shift, if the government see that there's a shift, if MPs see, politicians see that there's a shift in in the way that we think and in, in the shift in the way that the community thinks, they're going to change to, to mm. I don't know, like to um to be that person they pick. I think that maybe that's one of the things and those are really simple things. For $500,000. For $500,000, I I wish I never knew this, but I know this. One of the guys I work with did a corporate video for a, a mining company in northwestern Australia um, in the Kimberley region where they do iron ore, all right? Yeah. And they were, you know, basically showing investors what the money's gone to and, you know, and they went into this one part of the uh, operation and it's this big thing that crushes rock and extracts ore. And the bloke turns to the camera and says, we call this the money machine. Every 12 minutes it makes $100,000. Oh, wow. That's the kind of money that mining is, is, is happening in mining in this country. And I think about that, like, you know, that for less than an hour of that machine, this, this could be funded for a year and save how many lives. Yeah. You know, and, and what other industries are making that kind of cash? And, you know, I know that sometimes I can get a bit bloody weird and lefty. But, you know, it, it really does, you know, really kind of boggles my mind. But what's the, so besides calling an MP for some people, I know I'm completely disaffected by it because I'm like, well, why? I really get the feeling that I have no power in the current political system. Yeah, very much so. And it makes me go, well, why, do, why should I even bother? Because I look at the telly and I see Malcolm Turnbull, who's our local guy, and I'm just like, he doesn't get shit. He doesn't care about what I think because I'm, you know, left and I'm in the right seat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's, I think that there's, I mean, social, like significant social change comes from people. This is, I'm going to sound like such an optimist hippie, um, but, you know, hey, I am. We're not optimist sorry. hippies, we're building bunkers and I'd rather not build a bunker. Yeah, that's Thank true. Thank you. Let's, do, let's remember that. Yeah. I think it just comes from, from, doing like doing something together and if mm. you know like you know for me I realized like he's um he's a good example like I'm super like this whole thing about that the whole shifting language around gender and sexuality and being kind of like a being you know heteronormative cis gendered which is you know getting like getting my head around that type of stuff in the last year I was like I don't like when I first started, I don't even know what that is but I went and researched and I learned and you know, I have a friend who's transitioning and her, like, seeing what she goes through every day, seeing the type of things she faces and the type of discrimination and, like, her access to health services, her access to, like, the just, yeah, just seeing the type of experience she lives and thinking, okay, well, I can choose to be an ally. Like, I can support your causes. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do because I don't, I have a privilege that, that you don't in that I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm just a like heterosexual woman. Um, and so I, you know, I think you can choose to be an ally and I think things come in numbers. I think if you're showing up, if you're having your voice heard, I often think that the government don't realise how far 
Like, I don't think when they make these decisions, like cutting the, no- the custody notification service, I don't think they realize like how many people that actually, who know about this, I think they think these decisions can go about in secret. So I think, yeah, I do think like you might not think you're getting hurt, like call someone else's MP or call Nigel Scullion. At least they're aware. I mean, nothing ever changes from people being apathetic and at least you try, right? And if, and this is for me, like I, I often think, what if, will I ever see significant change? Um, but even if I don't, which I, I think I will, but even if I don't, at least it's left open, like the door's just a little bit more open for the next people coming through, mm. you know, or lives are a little, like like one little shift. I don't know, but nothing happens from doing nothing, you know, like it's that's not any type of action. So not knowing what to do but being like, okay, I'll, give anything a shot, I think that that means something. When it comes to things like uh, the ocean, the the little everyday thing that we can do is not use plastic water bottles, not use recycle, recycle use uh, the no plastic bags, like take the, the big kind of nylon bags to the shopping market. Yeah. What's the no plastic bags thing that we can do around, around this, around white privilege, around race relations, particularly Indigenous relations in Australia, do you think? Yeah, well, I think the first step is, I think, making the terminology everyday, everyday language. I think that this whole idea of of white privilege, it's it's only really, I don't know about you, but becoming like a, a popular use term in those types of discussions within like the last few years. Like I know within my circle of friends, it's only been that. So I think talking about those things and using that type of language uh, I think just looking out for people who don't have the same privilege. Um, if you see, like, for Indigenous people, like you quite often, like, if 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 you see someone experiencing racism, then say something. You know, I don't just because you can blend in the background doesn't mean that you should. Um, I always say that to people. If you see, like, a police officer. Uh, you know, talking to an Indigenous person. You don't have to, like, accuse a police officer of doing something wrong, but you can stand there and kind of watch and just keep an eye out because in the case that they are doing something that isn't completely savoury, there's pressure on them for for them to do the right thing. Um, I think, though, it's like just looking out for the people who don't have the same privilege. And And I think that comes a lot with, you know, just if you're seeing people cop racist abuse, if you're seeing people get discriminated against, uh, learning about that culture, learning about their causes, and when there is a movement, seeing if that's something you do want to get behind and using your voice to spread that to your peers. Mm. And I think that's the most important thing is, is spreading the message. So, I, no, no, it's, it's that that makes that makes perfect sense. I when you say that, I just get an instant fear that I'm going to meet when I speak up. I'm going to meet just one of these forward slapping ignorant racists that I find online in the actual world. I don't know what I would say. I'd probably stand there looking at this person like a dog that's just been shown a card trick. How do you even exist? I feel that way sometimes. Yeah, no, it is. It's totally true. But I know that, like, I know that when I think one of the worst things is when someone is saying something to you, and people don't say anything. You're like, oh, does everyone else think the same thing? Then? Oh, being complicit by by silent. being silent yeah. in a way. So there's, and if you look at it that way, there's no other option but to speak up. And yeah, I think there are those 
crazy just people who just go, what the, like, what are you, you know, but you can film them. (laughs) That really freaks people out though, I think, like now with the kind of. Everyone's um, got a camera and the ability to put anything on YouTube at the moment. But just say, say not cool. Like, don't say that. Don't, don't. And I, I don't know, those videos always do really well online. I was watching one the other day where this woman was being racist to the bus driver and some guy kind of like stood in and he had everyone laughing by the end of it, except her. She was obviously very upset, but like stepped up and was like, this is like you're being ridiculous and you're being horrible and not a nice person. But I think, yeah, stand up for. Can we just have like a racist only bus? Would that be okay? Or a train? Because yeah. those videos always seem to be on a bus or a train. They and, aren't they? It's only yeah. ever a white person. Do you think they would then get into fights on that? Like they're just also like they're just a bit with each other. Yeah, they would then be like, actually, you're not that racist. Like, look at you, you not as like you lefty or something. I don't know. But um, like that type of thing, you know. And and usually too, like if if a like with the going back to, because I feel like I give police officers a bad name, right? No, but, no, um, no. Because I do understand it's a tough job, and there are some very good police officers. But yeah. you know, some things that you see, like instances of abuse, like easily could have been avoided if, if they knew people were watching. Yeah. I think, and there was some type of accountability to their actions. And I think, like you know, the good sort of of officers realize that there is an issue, and I think if you. So I'm gonna like just hang around and make sure they're okay. That's they'll understand. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking about some pretty heavy stuff today, uh, which is okay. Which is why yeah. I asked you here. But I did want to know: at what point in your life did the funny turn up? Ah, uh, like I've always been ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah, it was yeah, it was only a matter of time. Um, but I started. I wrote a lot of drama before I moved into comedy, and I think um. I like started writing. It was just by chance that I ended up coming on board, like the first Indigenous sketch show in like thirty years or something, forty years. Uh, was that I was writing a series of little sketches. Hang on, so there was an Indigenous sketch show before this. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You'll love it. It's called Basically Black, and it's on YouTube. Uh, certain clips of it, I think ABC's was it on the ABC. Yeah, it was one episode. Uh, it was with Gary Foley, who's an Aboriginal activist from from way back. He's like so intelligent and amazing, uh, and Bob Mazza, um, who was uh, an Aboriginal like actor and director, uh, and there was I forget who else it was, but there was like a boxer as well. He came and made a few cameos. Um, but oh, that, Lionel Rose. It was Lionel Rose. Lionel Rose. Yeah, I'm pretty wow. sure he's in it. He plays um Super Boom. Boom's a racist term as oh, well. No, I can't believe you just said that word. So well, that's that they it's just they reclaim it in the show and they use the word. I'd never heard the word. Boom. I can't even say it right until I saw that show, um, which is a very racist term. But he he plays a character called called Super Boom. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, he's he's like a like Superman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, Richard Pryor did that. That's Richard right. Richard Pryor yeah. did Super Negative. Yeah. 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 I gotta watch that. Love him. But um, I yeah, I was writing a lot of drama. I'd written a play um, that's going to London this year called This Heaven, which is about a riot after a death in custody and that's all about how do you how do you as a disenfranchised person try and find power when then the system's kind of set up for you to never have the same amount of power Mm. um which was a very dark play um and then after i wrote that my nan fell through a floor and passed away uh and i kind of moved home to help look after her so i ended up writing a play about institutionalized racism um 
and yeah, so I was kind of in these two and I was writing like a drama, like this TV show, which is kind of a drama, like drama, like comedy, but like a lot of, like a very heavy world. And so I just started writing sketches. And I think the first one I did, which is the one that I sent to the ABC, was um, a culturally appropriate guide to stripping, um, which was me like quite heavy doing a strip tease to um, whilst like using that, like making fun of like kind of cultural awareness training and things like that. Um, and yeah, it was, which was really weird now that I look back on it because that could have went two ways. They could have went, who is this strange person sending us videos of, of them? So hang on. So because you were playwright in residence at the Bourgeois Street Theatre yeah. at the time? Yes. Okay, which is a, a theatre of some enormous repute here in, in Sydney. And uh, to be, well, firstly, what does a playwright in residence do? Um, we, we still don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they didn't know. Um, is, there a, is there a salary? If there was a little bit of money, like uh, pay, um, I would, what would I do? I would, uh, I'd hang around the theatre a lot. Um, I'd, I'd do a lot of writing. They yeah. gave us a space to write. Um, read, read plays. Yeah. I read works that they would have come in. But basically, I think a playwright in residence, a theatre company, like has, it's, I think it's really great for theatre companies to have writers in the company because writers just kind of think of ideas. That's yeah. what writers do. So I think that's kind of what we did we just uh it was me and another guy called kit brookman and we just would we said we want to write a play for you so they said okay so we did that and um just kind of hung around and, and so you made this sketch and because I'm, I'm fascinated also you know as someone who works in television with how tv shows get made yeah so how, how was that video was it solicited did you just did you know who to send it to well no I did that um I did that video like staying on a farm doing this kind of performance art laboratory I sound like a total hippie but anyway and so I just made that video I was just doing things like that because um using humor and to explore race and especially free satire was something that oh, I didn't even know that's what it was then but I was like this is funny I'm gonna do it uh and then what happened was ABC were like okay we're gonna see if we can do a, a sketch show Huh. Yeah. Um, did you even know who to send it to? Did you call someone? Well, yeah, they did a bit of a call out. Oh. And they at that point, I don't even, they didn't even know what it was. They didn't know if they would be doing a show. They were just like, let's do a call out and see who we can get for it. Uh, because, you know, um, even though <laughs> even though I think Aboriginal people are really funny, we're not exactly known as like the most, like our com- comedic scene. Well, I was talking about this huge. with Merrick Watts the other day. All yeah. great comedy has come from people who are oppressed, the Jews, the African-Americans. Yeah. Uh, and now in Australia with absolutely the Lebanese community, the Vietnamese community, that's where the comedy, because if you can't laugh, you'll cry. Totally, that's it. Like what, that's why Nan always told me, if you can't have a laugh, what, like, like what can you do? Yeah. And that's going back to that like Jewish, like Jewish women, like comedians are just like, that's the comedians I grew up on, like my bread and butter. Like Bette Midler, Joan Rivers, even now like Sarah Silverman, and mm. then I have like quite a few Jewish girlfriends, and you know they they the struggle is real. Like our experiences are really similar. Um, so yeah, so they just did a bit of a call out. Yeah, we've and, got a lot in common, man. Genocide. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that. And like a lot of my Jewish girlfriends, like they don't see themselves, they don't identify as being white. I don't know if that's. No, no. It's just with them, and, I, and you know, it's that we we definitely we relate to the world in a very similar way. And I think also being women and um, being from different diasporas, it's like the experience is it's pretty similar. But yeah. um, 
they did a call out. So I sent them, um, I just saw written, like so a few things I'd written and this video uh, and then they got a few of us together and we wrote a bunch of sketches over a week or two, um, filmed them, did like a really, really rough type of pilot. And um, But it was shot by uh, Warwick Fordant who did Samson and Delilah uh, which is a beautiful film if no one's seen it. But um Oh he's a lovable. I've had uh, dinner with him. Yeah, you're like, a lovely yeah, guy. He shot it, yeah. Um so it was this amazingly well shot, rough sketch comedy. It was quite like quite funny. Um and then it yeah, they then commissioned the series from there. Yeah. And what were the what was the writing process like? Did you have a writer's room? Did you all get together? Yeah, we had a writer's room. Um so we went away. How they do sketches they do by the minute. Um, but they, we just had, we each had minutes per week and just had to, um, and then we would have writer's rooms here and there, but then go away and do stuff ourselves and um, use the writer's rooms to kind of work together and things like and you, that. And you'd pitch sketches at the EP or? Um, to just a producer okay. and the story editor. Uh-huh. Um, so it was, but most of the time, like our, our direction, and this is, it was such an amazing opportunity for someone at my age at that point in your career, right, entering the direction from the ABC was like make us uncomfortable. Uh, make it was the controller of ABC Two at the time said, uh, "Make me a white Southern liberal. Make me uncomfortable. Like offend me. That is what I want." So you get when you get given that freedom to just write whatever you want. Um, the stuff that was coming out was it was just it was incredible. Like, and I don't know of many shows, even like comedy shows today, who get that level of of freedom and support and i think that's just going back to the kind of that white privilege here were like people who were in a position who had a bit of power to be like actually let's shift things yeah and they gave that power to other people to create a show there's plenty um, there's plenty of these sketches on youtube if, you, if you're listening and you'd love to love to see some it's yeah. uncomfortable is is a word that i would use to describe some of this stuff yeah uh though Uncomfortable because I'm looking at it going, this is funny because it's based on something that's real. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's it it's is- not funny because it's absurd. It's funny because it's like the, uh, the Aboriginal Liberation Front, the, yeah. the white people who go and kidnap, you know, Aboriginal folks who are just living in suburbs and release them into the, the wild. wild. Yeah. Yeah, I remember God. when I wrote that, I think I was, like, Googling the Animal Liberation yeah. Front and then I was like, oh, wait there, these people seem like I know a few groups like this. Um, yeah, the Aboriginal Liberation Front was was great, which is just about these, like, black fellas do who don't want to be. And there's also, like, that essentialist feel of what Aboriginality is, like, or, like, living in a humpy with some spears. Yeah. Um, so my favourite line in that is when they go, um, she goes, what do you eat? And the Aboriginal guys, they gave us spears. And the other girl goes, you hunt? He's like, no, we ate the spears. And just, um, he's like, we're actually running pretty low on spears. I don't know what we'll do after that. <laughs> and it's just like so ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, and it was really great because then going into season two, they've literally like done the same thing. Yeah. And um, I think they were saying that we didn't get enough complaint letters. Oh. Like we only got one complaint letter. So please try and make it. Really? More. Yeah. And it was like my sketch, of course. So. Which one? It was the one, it was Cultural Excuse Girl, which was, uh, it was the one where the girl uh, tells her boyfriend that he has to go down on her because it's NAIDOC week. Yeah. Yeah. And 
everyone's that was the one I got a complaint. You got upset? Yeah, which was really interesting because that was initially it was the other way around. And because the writer's room was predominantly male. Saying it was a guy saying he had to have sex with his girlfriend. Well, the guy wanted to have sex with the girl. And she was like, no, I'm tired. Oh, no, I have a headache. And then he's like, oh, no, come on, baby. And she's like, we can't have sex. It's a cultural thing. And that was the the dynamic, right, which is, and as we were writing it, I was like, no, let's switch it. Because, like, as a woman, I'm sick of seeing that dynamic. Like, that's just two and a half men. We just did a scene from two and a half men. You know, uh, it was just, let's just switch it around. And and then you switch it. And it's like, it's a dynamic that you see so often in popular culture in like so many sitcoms and TV shows, which is the, you know, the unhappy marriage. Or man the, hassles woman for sex. Woman complains about headache. Man hassles woman for sex again. Woman says, well, I'm, I haven't been to Hawaii in months. Yeah. He says, da, 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 maybe blowjob, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, he goes to work the next day and like eyes off the young pretty girl and it's yeah. like, woohoo, girl, or whatever. So I was like, let's just switch it um, and just make it fun for the actors as well. And um, and as soon as we switched it, it, it was like, whoa, everyone's uncomfortable. It's like, yeah. yeah, that's because we're like surrounded by uncomfortable like sexual dynamics. But anyway. So that was the complaint, which I personally was very proud of. Only only one complaint, but it does it does make me think. I've lived out of the country for a while now. I've been gone for about ten years. Yeah. Um, just how much I miss the ABC when I'm not here. You know, other people people complain a lot about the ABC, saying oh, it's it's bloody lefty. It's you know people in overalls making decisions from their Newtown bunkers. Yeah. It's not. It's just the ABC is so centrist. It makes the right look so far right. The ABC appears left. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's what when Cornel West came, my partner was saying to me, it's really great how Cornel West is, he's so, he delivers things in such, because he's so loving, um, he delivers things in such a way with such humour, he's like, that it really brings people in. So people are really drawn into his kind of radical views. And I was like, well, that's because his views aren't radical. They're just, things are so far radically right, or the right are like so loud. Um, and the ultra conservative are always they always scream the loudest. So that when someone They've who comes with the biggest guns. That's true. Yeah. So that when someone comes about who's actually considered and empathetic and is trying to see things from, you know, both sides, it seems really radical. We're like, oh wow, that's 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 crazy. Just, we should like support each other and try and like see where the other person's coming from. Humanism? Whoa, nuts. Yeah. Who thought? Who thought, right? Crikey. Yeah. yeah. Like but, yeah, it did make me really miss the ABC and that the ABC has, I don't know if a bravery is the word, but just like the capacity to create something like black comedy on, yeah. you know, taxpayer-funded production. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, was really, it was really good. And I don't think they also kind of expected like there to be as many Aboriginal people, like that there's actually a lot and they will watch the material if it's there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of think they just saw like a whole new audience as when well. You, when you cast it, was it, uh, you know, what what was that process like? Um, I I just, I was, I came on board as a writer. Um, I just kind of ended up being one of the main performers, which was a bit, um, which is really, like I was really nervous about. Um, I just guess I look funny. So they were like, yeah, we'll put her on screen. Um yeah, so I don't know how that kind of happened. They just kind of made that decision, like the higher-ups were like, I guess. You would we'll never it. tell watching that, you know, you were nervous about it or that you hadn't gone there with that in mind. Oh, I was so nervous. When I did that sketch with the guy 
Um, that's Guy Edmonds, who's a friend of mine. But I was like so nervous that I had to like kiss a boy. And my cousin was the DOP as well. And um, I remember in one of the scenes, he like went in for like a quick kiss and I forgot all my lines in front of the entire cast. And then the director was like, cut scene. Okay, we have to start again. Because I was just like, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> it was really embarrassing. Um, yeah, it was um, the casting process. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, great Indigenous talent, especially like younger ones coming up. Miranda Tapsell, who just won the two Logies, mm. um, who's like a really great friend of mine. She's in quite a bit of it. Um, and then I think for those type of roles, like Brooke Satchwell's character, Tiffany, uh, they just were like, who's cool and wants to be involved and will approach yeah. them. And, you know, like, of course they wanted to do it, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I yeah. love the show. I think I think it's fantastic. And yeah, I, 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 I really do feel like unless you are watching Two and a Half Men, I like comedy that, that makes me laugh because I'm so uncomfortable. Yeah. That's what I, I mean, that's why I liked watching the original Office. I laughed because I just didn't know what else to do. Because it was so awkward. I could either hide behind the couch or laugh. That was it. Yeah. That was all, that was all I could do. That's what I remember watching um, when I first watched Nazim Hussein's Legally Brown, which is, um, I don't know what Nazim Hussein, I feel really bad saying, oh, do you know what race? Like, Nazim what Hussein. He's, I'm gonna say there's some Islam in there. Yeah, he's Islam, but I I don't know where I forget what country he's like. A parents are originally. I've from. got I've got some Google at my fingertips. Okay, good, thanks. Let me hang on. Let me put my specs on. So hang on. The first time you watch Legally Brown, you talk. I'll, I'll Google. Yeah, he. Um, I remember watching one of the sketches. He has this Uncle Sammy character who was um who's quite hilarious and um and a very flawed dude. And uh, he was asking, he said he was doing this campaign to say, I would like there to be same-sex marriage. It's just there can only be same-sex marriage if the other person gets a sex change. I think Uncle Sam is like an Islamic fundamentalist. But it was really ridiculous. It was really funny. But it was also like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. Like I'm actually genuinely like squirming right now. Um, and I remember watching that and being like, oh, I want that type of like that uncomfortability yeah. and then watching the Dave Chappelle that was a really big uh influence the Chappelle show the Chappelle show yeah um especially the Clayton Bixby sketches which is the um blind racist the black guy who is blind and thinks he's he's white, white the white yeah. supremacist and then watching Amy Schumer as well that came out as we were writing season one so inside Amy Schumer inside Amy yeah. Schumer yeah so there's a lot of different kind of comedians who are all doing that like, yeah, let's I, just well, push I like, it. I like it because it's rather than let's let's not laugh because the man fell down. Yeah, you know, let's let's laugh because the man is doing something so normal, but it's so against everything that I've been told is right. I am uh, so uncomfortable. I don't know what to do now. Nazim Hussain is uh, Sri Lankan Tamil. That's it, Sri Lankan Tamil. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Nazim. <laughs> yeah, and devastatingly handsome. Goodness gracious. Man, I'm telling you, man, Sri Lankan is so fucking good looking. It's not even funny. Yeah, my, one of my girlfriends is Sri Lankan. It's crazy, she's like dude. Stunning. She's like a model. You're it's like, crazy. Yeah. It's, oh my god, I can't. It's like Egyptians. When you meet people from Egypt, it's like, how did you get so good looking? It's just, it's just bananas. Yeah. Absolutely. Native Americans are like that as well. Yeah. Like, right. Hey, when you were when you were in Canada, did you uh, get in touch with any uh, First Nation vibe over there? Yeah, no, I did. Um, I, I like I spent a lot of time in New Mexico when I was a kid because my parents did work over there. So we um, worked with they've worked a lot with Native American people. So it was really funny because there was a girl who was um, from the Apache Nation, 
and we became really good friends. And so I visited her and stayed at her reservation for a while during holidays and stuff like that. And I, yeah, I um, did work with the um, Native uh, Native Canadian, mm. they call themselves that though, they call themselves First Aboriginal. Nation. Yeah, First yeah. Nation Canadians when I was there. Yeah, our school did a lot with them. But mm. also it was, um, I think, you know, being kind of like an Aboriginal girl so far from home, it was nice to, uh, like I felt like I had family. They were mm. really welcoming. So I had a host family and things mm. like that who were um, First Nation Canadian. So I'd go stay with them. And if, like Of that. all the countries on this planet that have had white people bump into them and stick a flag in them, which, in your opinion, which Indigenous culture has done the best out of it or been figured it out the best way for I don't know what I'm trying to ask. Like, you know, I look at, like, the Caribbean and the Caribbean is decimated. Yeah. Decimated by European conquest. Which nations, Indigenous peoples, managed to maybe weather that? I don't know. Invasion of best, do you think? It's a, it's a tricky question because they're all so different mm. and they all have different. It's hard to say just being, because I know my experience and my community, uh, I feel like, you know, in it just comes down to different aspects. Like, I mean, in terms of, uh, like, Canada and the United States, uh, they they had their treaties and they had their, they got given land and things like that, which certain nations i know in america and canada certain nations have been able to to use that land to make money off but then they also have a lot of other social issues that are very devastating um i know in new zealand they have a lot of really like i think they have it feels like i guess in terms of i mean again i'm making really big generalizations here i know they have a lot of issues um especially when you have poverty which comes from post-colonialism which essentially colonization is about invading and taking over a land so in terms of doing well it's hard to say but I think maybe the way that New Zealand is trying to negotiate um well I hate that term too maybe negotiating the right word but acknowledging that Maori people are there that Maori people have a culture embracing their languages and things like that a lot of my like I've seen the plus sides on that from my like my Maori and my non-Maori friends who are from New Zealand um but then they also have dysfunction but I don't know, it seems like New Zealand, if Australia were to look to anywhere to maybe take a hint as to how to go forward, New Zealand might be a mm. it's you know, might be a might be a good place to look. But in saying that, you know, it's, it's the thing with with colonization is that colonization, the whole idea of of, of co- like going into a country and taking over, is based on laws that are like hundreds of years old. You know, like uh like colonization is based on like blackstone laws. So we now exist in like in a, in a new Australia, which I think is, you know, the community I, I live in, the fact that I get to do a show like black comedy and, you know, have peers like Nazim Hussein and get to, you know, chat with you about this stuff is I think it's a really interesting country that for me has like a lot of optimism, but still in terms of Indigenous issues are making decisions based on laws that are like hundreds of years old that are inherently imperialist and like, white supremacist mm. right i don't know if that's no word, that's but, that, yeah but that so it, i don't know it's it's how do you how do you go forward from there yeah. and that's the really interesting conversation that's happening in australia at the moment with constitutional recognition as to whether we will get that as to what it will do 
if it will have any significant change. And then that conversation with people who are still along the lines of sovereignty um, and then even within sovereignty, what is like the different modes of sovereignty? You know, some people propose a seventh state. Uh, some people it's it's more having kind of economic sovereignty. So to be able to have land and to, you know, create some type of economic independence so mm. that then leads to generational wealth uh, or, you know, treaty, which is linked to sovereignty, but in terms of do you have self-governance? What is self-determination? How is that practiced? And that's a really interesting conversation that's happening again in Australia at the moment because of the constitutional recognition debate. Yeah, for folks who, who may not yeah, know, know what that is, that's basically in the Australian Constitution, uh, 1901, it's not very old no. uh, compared to the cultures we're talking about. Uh just recognising that Australia wasn't, in fact, terra nullis, which is what they called it, empty land, yeah. when they got here, that, in fact, there were 1,500 or more separate uh, cultures going on, languages, dialects, everything, and ag- acknowledging and recognising that this nation was full of people. Well, yeah, and that yeah. Australia, well, that's the thing I think in New Zealand, they're, 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 they say they were conquered, um, which is, again, debatable as to, you know, from coming from a Maori perspective, but they're classified as being conquered. Whereas in Australia it was terra nullius, but there was like a hundred year war here. You know, like the people fought back and, yeah, it was definitely stolen land. So I don't know. There's still that part of me that just goes, even after studying law and and growing up having these discussions, it's just part of you goes, can't they just say they were wrong and like try and go from there? Like instead of having to go back to, you know. It's like the reparations issue in the States. Yes. They're terrified that if they say, yeah, this country was built on an economy, economy that you speak generational wealth, a lot of that wealth was acquired off the back of slave labour, hundreds of years of it. And if they start paying reparations to that, how do we calculate that? Is there interest? Yeah. <laughs> you know, who gets what? Who gets yeah. what? And then, then, yeah, then, but then I think it's like, and it's that, that terrible Eddie Murphy line, it's horrible. He's like, if you think black people have it bad, when was the last time you see two Native Americans standing next to each other? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a horrible line, but it's horrible because it's true. There's a Dave Chappelle sketch where he's sitting in, like, first class on a plane and then just keeps going back and back and back, like, each race, and it's, like, the kind of racial hierarchy and it's Native Americans and then some buffalo. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, whoa, that is so messed up. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. Well, okay, I, I know you got to go, but I'll, so I'll ask, oh, goodness, so many questions to ask. Oh, crikey. All right, then. So if you could change one thing about how Australian history is taught in schools, what would you change it? I would take, I would teach a critical view of history. I would, I would, see, I had a really great, um, history teacher in high school, Miss um, Barbrick, uh, and she was really, I was actually quite radical for two years. We had her, um, she she gave it, she taught history, and it's the same as my parents always had, is, is to question things, like why were they doing that? And to, you know, kind of, I just be really critical. I mean, Australia had a white Australia policy for, for years, and I don't know how much that's really taught in school, but like knowing Australia had a wide, like Australia policy all through like the 50s, 60s and 70s. And then you, you want to say that our country isn't, 
like built on a slightly racist kind of uh, white supremacist like realm. Like, like having just knowing that you go, oh yeah, yeah, there's like it was quite a racist country. I think just just being really critical. I think one of the first steps in terms of indigenous culture is not just talking about going it wasn't it wasn't terra nullius, but also that there were wars that there were that there were genocides and the thing is about australia maybe because we were colonized by the english and uh, were invaded by the english is the english you know they're so organized and bureaucratic this is it's like all of the history is actually written down so there's a book called survival um i forget who the author is but if you look it up you could link it but um where they have the documentation of of massacres that happened of you know the mile creek massacre of of what they used to do to people um of the wars and how long they lasted it's all written down by like white people so it's it's just not spoken about so i think you know teach kids that and it's kind of you know like when you're a kid and you want to hear about like gory stuff that's you know what i mean like i don't know like that's kind of it's it's an interesting history it's, yeah you know it's um I think when I was in primary school, our Indigenous culture, in high, like early high school, it was just about boomerangs and like humpies and things like that, which is so like, yeah, just I don't know, like just like slain. Um, so just a critical, like giving kids like, you know, giving younger people the benefit of the doubt that they do have, they do have the ability to critically engage for things and teach them those theory of knowledge skills and to be critical of our history because that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not patriotic or anything like that. It just means that you want to make the future a better place and you can. Yeah, that's, I mean, empathy. It's like empathy is the one thing that changes with evolution, you know, so that's what I would do. And what would you say to people who get a bit funny in the tummy and perhaps angry because that's all I've got uh, when, when there is talk of, perhaps, you know, trying to change things for the better for Indigenous cultures and they want to go, well, how come they get that because I have to work and I take my taxes and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I want to drop my commute, blah, 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 was your pride. <laughs> yeah. What would you say? What would you say to those people? I would say that it's like just go down the Centrelink, mate. Like it's, you know, I always got accused of being on, um, of getting money through high school. Like ab studies tested the same as our study. I never got ab study, um, but it's that's a, so that's a uh, it's oh sorry it's, it's a government benefits an educational benefit. We live in yeah. Australia, it's an incredible country that we have high tax rates, but we, we give a lot of that back to the society for medical care. We have universal health care, and it's amazing. And yeah. um, we also help out when people are unemployed. I've been on the dole twice, and it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's you know like I needed it. If I didn't have it, I wouldn't have been able to take the time to hunt for the job that I needed. And I ended up having a great career because I had that time. I didn't have to go and do labouring and spend all day not going to look for the job that I was good at, Yeah, basically. But it was also, you know, it's also like, yeah, it's so great that there's healthcare. Like, it's amazing. But, yeah, but it's things like that, you know, a lot of those people, it's, I don't know how these, I'm so confused as to how these myths get perpetuated because it's, there's, there aren't any benefits that Indigenous people get that non-Indigenous people don't get. Sometimes they have different names. So for in terms of when you're a student and you your parents don't make much money, you can get assistance and that's Oz study. Uh, or if you're you, you know if you're financially independent, you don't have the means but you want to keep studying, 
there's other study that's the it's the the means testing is the same across the board so for those people it's like you know mate you sound like an idiot like go down the center link you know and also what if you like what if you don't have workers comp one day what if you don't have a union what if you like something happens when you're driving your ute and you need to go on the dole it's not just about the non-indigenous people there like you're fighting against something that could help you one day like you don't know where life goes so when you say go down to sand like you mean go down to sand like and have a look at the faces yeah have a look there. at the the faces have a look at the the um the the brochures they're all very easy to read yeah they're um just have a read of those yeah. and yeah what i see the other day it was a it was about it was on the topic of vote because at the, at the current moment our government is paying people smugglers to not bring people to australia it's yeah um, <laughs> it is. It's pretty strange, but the, the number one nationality that are here illegally, the British. Yeah. The number one nationality that's abusing our welfare system, New Zealanders. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one's Islamic. No one's brown. <laughs> yeah, and do you know it's incredibly hard to like cheat welfare, like for the people <laughs> and the people who do usually with social security crime who do get caught for it have been doing it for a long time and they're shifty. And they're usually quite big cases. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of like cheating, Centrelink, you have to be some type of like genius because it's there's a lot of people calling you. There's a do you know what? I, like well, you were on the doll, so you would, would oh, know. I, to, I don't know. Well, it was a long time ago, but yeah. I did have to fill out a bloody form. I had to go down there every week, and I had to stand in line. So my brain fell out of my ears and wait around with all the other people who couldn't afford deodorant apparently yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> nothing like, smells like the scent link <laughs> i know it's like you think people want to be living on like 250 a week or something or like no. 300 no especially in sydney where like what tony abbott said you 165 grand is is not much to be living on it's like well you're looking at people who are who are living on less than a tenth of that yeah like do you think people really want to make that choice to live like that yeah. Um, and it's it's really, it's it's not. Do you think, I'm, I, mean, I said this the other day, I, I really want to interview him. I want to f- figure out if I could connect with him human to human. Like speaking of being born at the finish line, yeah, there's a guy born at the finish line and looks around and can't understand why everyone hasn't. Oh, he's like the ref. He's not even in the race. Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I get the feeling that if somebody like that or somebody, people who hold those positions of power, can't quite conceive of a life other than, oh, what do you mean you can't get into the yacht club? We've always got into the yacht club. Burger's dad goes there. Yeah. Or what do you mean you can't get a job? Just talk to Barry. Uh, Barry's Bob's our dad and Bob's dad will get you a job down the site. No worries. You talk about generational wealth. It goes beyond money. It goes to connections, network and community. Yeah. And I wonder if these guys have any concept of what it's like to drive down the road to a survey because it's a cent cheaper. And you can save 45 cents on your next gas tank. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Or like your kids maybe can't go into university because there's no, like, do you know, they're having to, like how much you have to scrimp to get your kid to be able to go to university or because um, they can't afford to, like uni's really far away or, you know, they have to take a year off to go work to become financially independent so they're then able to get some assistance to then attend university, which quite, like, happens a lot where I'm from with non-Indigenous people as well, that they'll have to take a year off, earn a certain amount of money, and then then they can get some assistance to help them, to help support them while they study full-time because uh-huh. their parents just don't have the means. I mean, I don't think they, like, I don't think someone like Tony Abbott can comprehend that because even though they have lots of money, he still can still get a cult, like, a, like they still justify a scholarship to pay for that education because there'll be no debt. Do you know, it's just, I don't, 
it's just such a lack of empathy. I just don't understand that. Mm. But he has daughters who he loves and a family, I assume. So on some level he has to. He wants to put a roof over their head and give them food every day just like everybody. Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. You know, like my dad loves the movie Taken. Yeah. Because I think he, like, sees himself as, like, the Liam Neeson who, like, goes to, like, save his daughters. Yeah. So, I, you know, like, I think, you know, like, on that level they could relate. There's some type of relatability there. But, yeah, just crazy. Just just really, really, like, even today, did you read the news with George Brandis? Um, didn't get the letter from Monis uh, because he didn't, he didn't, tick like he didn't press the second tab on the excel sheet or something like that over that whole um letter from monis oh, i'm not even saying his name right the the man who committed the lint cafe siege yeah yeah and there's been that whole you know him the letters from brandis and things like that and and brandis saying he didn't read the letter because he didn't press the second tab of his excel sheet which is just you go oh what like oh, what? That's a whole so other dopey. story. There's that, a whole other story that, going in that's there. A whole, that guy is a whole other story. Yeah. How many times the system was in contact with that man? Oh, that's just a whole different topic. Over. But just that level of kind of a lack of accountability for decisions across the board yeah. from from that entire cabinet. Anyway, there's a whole Black different... comedy. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> coming soon, season two, ABC. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. When are you shooting? Uh, September. Right. Yeah. So, How many apps? Uh Six, I think. Yeah. 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 So we're writing them at the moment. So much fun. Yeah. It's it's great. We've got some really good stuff in there and some great new people and it's really exciting. Great. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to see the second season. It was great. Has it aired overseas anywhere? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think there was like talks at some point about maybe, I don't know. No, at this point, no. But um, a lot of people overseas have seen it, which mm. makes me think that, even though torrenting, I don't support it. I think that there's maybe a little bit of some type of like internet shiftiness going on there. Yeah. I had some um, Native Americans send me a message on Facebook saying, oh, we love black comedy and it reminds us of like us. And I was just like, wow, that's from like Idaho or somewhere. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah. like, well, I don't know how you watched it, but thank you. Good for you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I do not endorse that, but thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm really grateful you came over here today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me um, and offering I, me a cupcake. I could I could talk to you for hours, but thank you. Um, I'm going to take you for an hour, okay? Yeah, cool. Sweet. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks. Well, that was Nakia Louie. You can find her on Twitter, N-A-K-K-I-A-H-L-U-I. Uh, I happen to think she is one of the more fantastic voices in our country today. Regardless of her cultural heritage, I think it's super, super important what she has to say. And I couldn't be more grateful that I get a chance to bring that conversation to you. Black Comedy, the second season of which appears very, very soon on your television screens in Australia. And I'm sure, as we just discussed, you can find it elsewhere in the world. It's hilariously funny and will make you very, very uncomfortable. If you do have time, though, I put another link up on my website to the the, uh, previous Aboriginal sketch comedy show called Basically Black and... It's a bit full on in that even though it was over 40 years old, uh, a lot of the issues are still the same. But it's very fun. So, look, I just want to thank you so much for listening and I'm not expecting that you have changed your mind or your opinion about anything that happened just by listening to this, but I appreciate very much that you took the time to, to hear this. So thank you 
Have a great week. Look after each other. Look after yourself. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.